before we get into scripture, I'm wanting to frame our time in the Word by looking at a short video from a man by the name of J. Warner Wallace. He is a uh, man who was for many years a detective on a cold case homicide squad. And he is now a Bible teacher in apologetics. That sounds like a big 50 cent word. Apologetics is just the study of defending your faith. It bases out of 1 Peter 3.15 where it calls us to always have an answer for the hope that we have. So with that, we're going to start with the video. I kind of came at Christianity in an odd way, I guess. Uh, I, I was not a Christian growing up, didn't have Christians in my family, but I did have a skill set as a detective where I could evaluate whether witnesses were telling me the truth. And at 35, when I first became interested, I bought a Bible and I started to examine it to see if Christianity, if the Gospels, if the alleged eyewitness accounts of what happened in that first century environment with Jesus of Nazareth, was that true? Were those reports reliable? And given that skill set, I determined that Christianity was true. After I wrote books about uh, the case for Christianity and the case for God's existence, I started teaching and uh, speaking at local churches. And after a few of these, I started to realize that many of the Christians who would attend these church services had never thought about their Christian faith evidentially before. And some of them even asked me, do I really need to know this case? I mean, do I really need to know why this is true? So I started asking congregations, well, why are you guys Christians? Because for me, I became a Christian because of the evidence. But I discovered that's not true for everybody. And as I asked that question around the country, I got the same three answers in almost always the same order. So I started to predict this for the pastors where I would speak. I would say, hey, I'm going to ask your congregation. And I'll bet you they're going to give me these three answers probably in this order. The first and most common response I get for why are you a Christian is, I was raised that way. My parents were Christians. I've been Christians all I can remember. I was raised in the church. Okay, good answer. The second most popular question answer is, uh, I've had an experience that I can attribute to God. Something happened in my life. Either I was cured of something, I was delivered from something that demonstrated to me that Christianity was true. Good answer. The third question is kind of second and experiential. I used to be a jerk, and then I met Jesus, and I'm not so much a jerk anymore. He transformed my life. Okay, great. As I thought about those three answers, I thought, wow, I've got a lot of family who are, are Mormon. They're LDS. And if you were to ask them, why are you a Mormon? They'll give you the same three answers in almost the same order. They've been, all been raised in the LDS church. They've all had an experience of the Holy Spirit, they say, that confirmed that the Joseph Smith is a prophet, and that Mormonism is true, and the Book of Mormon is true. Do you see the problem? That our answers, it turn out, don't just sound like Mormon answers, they sound like Buddhist answers, like Muslim answers. Anyone of any worldview can say the same three things. I thought, well, okay, we need better answers. We need to know if this is true eventually. Because Otherwise, we're, we're kind of sharing our testimony with each other, right? But I've got a testimony, and they've got a testimony, and this is a strength of testimony. How do we know if either of our views is actually true? We're going to take a new approach. If you're somebody who's been calling yourself a Christian, I get it. It's time to take another step. Because you're called, according to Peter in 1 Peter 3, you're called to be able to give the reason for the hope that you have. And 
Peter did it by always talking about what he saw as a direct evidence eyewitness. That's how he always proclaimed the gospel. We are called to be able to make the case for what we believe. So if you've been calling yourself a Christian, it's time to add the finish to the title. You're supposed to be a Christian casemaker. And if you've been a Christian but not a Christian casemaker, you've been living an abbreviated Christian life. We have really good answers for why Christianity is true. It's just time for both of us to learn them and become the best Christian casemakers we can be. This is from a larger study that uh, Jay Warner Wallace does. It is available on Right Now Media. Um, I highly recommend his uh, studies. Uh, he, he wrote a book several years ago, which he mentions there, called uh, Cold Case Christianity, where he uh, looks at the Gospels as a uh, cold case detective would, and looks through the witness accounts from the disciples. It's, it's an excellent book. So uh, just, that's, that's there, and we're going to frame our time as we look at this passage in this, looking at how do we make the case for Christ? How do we live out what we see in scripture how do we show the people not only does the bible say this this is why i experience it but this is why our answer is the right answer this is why we have the hope that we do so that said let's turn to second timothy chapter 3 verses 10 through 17 wilma did get the correct uh, scripture in the bulletin this morning she made sure of it so uh we're going to be second timothy 3 uh, verses 10 through 17 some of your Bibles may have a heading that says, All Scriptures Breathed Out by God. Starting at verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and the sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which, you are, able, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Welcome to Bloomingdale, friends. This is the last time you get to hear me say that for some time. <laughs> that being said, we all knew it was coming, and it made preparation for this week a little bit more difficult for me, because... The question I had to come into this morning was passing the baton, leaving here, turning things over to Pastor Scott, what do I absolutely make, need to make sure that they know that they know that they know going forward as a congregation into Bloomingdale? Number one is the duty of the believer to follow the command of Christ to make disciples that make disciples. This is what J. Warner Wallace was talking about in uh, becoming a Christian casemaker. It's a different word for the same concept. It's not only just, yes, I believe this, yes, I experienced it, but here's how I'm living it out. I'm making disciples that make disciples. 
And what I mean by that is I'm reaching out into my community. I'm sharing with people about Christ. I'm making sure that they know, they believe, and they are equipped to share with other people. Because that's where, uh, I'm not a math teacher, but I can tell you that multiplication adds up numbers a whole lot faster than addition does. Because if you're just one person telling people, that's addition. If you're one person equipping others, that's exponential multiplication. And that is what the early church experienced. That is what the gospel is designed to experience. And so that's, that's why it's making disciples that make disciples. The second thing is making sure that everyone has an understanding of the supremacy of Scripture. And this is why we're looking at the passage that we're looking at this morning. Because if you don't get right the authority and the supremacy of Scripture as a church, you fail. Because if you go at it with a smorgasbord mentality of, yes, God meant it in this passage, but maybe not so much in this other one, and, and you know, it, it's, it's a little squishy on this one over here, that's where you get into trouble as a church. Uh, we spent several years ago, or several weeks, about a year ago, looking at the church and looking at the foundations as, as a contractor would uh, in a show like Fixer Upper or somebody that's experiencing a major home renovation. You go through and you strip it back to the foundation and the studs to see what's good, see what's not. Supremacy of Scripture is one of those foundational issues. That's something that would uh, liken to a large crack in the foundation. If you're not solid on that, anything that you do on top of that is going to suffer. Uh, over the years, we can look at various denominational groups that they have shifted their views, they have become squishy on certain parts of Scripture, and it's been much to their own failure and detriment. Uh, it's, there are many that we could list off. But this is why we're going to this passage. This is why we're looking at Paul and his words to Timothy. Because at the time of this writing, we looked last week at the first letter to Timothy, which followed up the letter to the Ephesian church. We're looking at 2 Timothy, which a lot of scholars think is the last thing that Paul wrote before he died. So this is a passage where Paul is writing, Okay, Timothy, my time's about up. I have done what God has called me to do. I've finished the race. I've completed the task. But you are going to carry on. So what are the important things that I am going to give to you to make sure that you get right as you go on and you continue to build the church in a newer generation because Timothy was younger. So this is, this is that set of final instructions. And it's, it's something that I hope we can view this in, in a similar light, and I am in no way comparing myself to Paul. But I want to make sure that you guys have a fresh view of this, because it's, it's not something new that we're looking at, it's something very old. But it's something that when we came into this project and journey together as a congregation about a year and a half ago, we determined to look at it with a blank slate mentality. And looking at, okay, what's working, what's not working, what are we going to continue doing, what are we going to cease doing, what are we going to add that is going to reach our community with the gospel of Christ. Next week is kind of the culmination of that. But the thing that I don't want to see happen is, whew, 
We call our pastor, we can sit down, his job now, that's not how it works. <laughs> it does not work that way. Because you see, next week is a fresh start. And you guys are only just starting. This all was warm up. This was stretching. This last year and a half, it's warm up. Now you get to do what God has called you to do. You were preparing, you were making sure that you had things in, in place to be able to start with that pastor to reach the community. So you've been laying this foundational work, you've been preparing it, you've been prepping the ground, making sure you have making sure you have it tilled up, making sure you have your anhydrous in, making sure you got the weed killer applied. Now it's time to put the seed in the ground and watch it grow. That's what we're starting next week. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, we can look at how does this passage apply to us. This particular passage, verses 10 through 17, is divided up into two sections. You have verses 10 through 13 that we'll look at first, and then verses 14 through 16 and 17. So we'll start with the first section, uh, 10 through 17. This is an encouragement to Timothy from Paul. This is Paul reminding Timothy, who had been with him on several missionary journeys, Remember the persecution, remember the beatings, remember all that we went through together. You knew what it was like at Iconium, you knew what it was like at Antioch, you knew what it was like at Lystra. But God delivered. That's important. That's very important. Through everything that they went through, all the persecution, God delivered them. And Paul reminds Timothy that God is bigger than any of the opposition that he is facing or will face. F.B. Meyer, in his commentary on this passage, he points out that the reason that Timothy and Paul were facing that persecution and suffering is because their message was simply in opposition to the beliefs of the world. F.B. Meyer says, The spirit of the gospel is in absolute disagreement with the spirit of the world. But whatever the losses and trials of the children of God abide in things which they have learned and walk in blameless purity and consistency. The conduct, purpose, and patience of this great and holy apostle gleam in front of us for our inspiration and guidance. His experience will be ours. There is no sorrow out of which we shall not be delivered when we have learned the lesson it was sent to teach. Because with all of that comes a lesson. So, it may be, okay God, what are you trying to teach me in all of this? Because I may not have learned it the last time. Constable's commentary, he, he brings forward a very similar point. He, he shows that when you're serving God, when you're serving God wholeheartedly, what can you expect? Blessing and material gain. No, you can expect opposition. He says when a person determines to live a godly life, he or she will suffer persecution. With his or her commitment to follow Christ faithfully, the Christian sets the course of his or her life directly opposite to the course of the world system. Confrontation and conflict become inevitable. Kaufman's commentary in verses 10 and 11, he, he puts forward the importance of doctrine, the importance of correct doctrine, because one of the things that Paul is teaching Timothy in this passage is that knowing the scriptures, knowing them well, is very foundational. And to be aware of what is being teach, taught in the community that is not in line with scripture and it's something that uh, Paul and Timothy saw very closely. They saw false teachers. 
they saw people that were trying to use some veneer of Christianity to get material gain. We'll look at this a little more in verses 14 through 16 in the second half. But one of the things that's important in all of this, and Kaufman brings out in his commentary, and I'm not going to go through because it's a very lengthy uh, discourse, but he's showing that it's very important that that strong foundation of understanding Scripture is pride in reaching your community. It's also important to keep the main thing the main thing when we're reaching our community with the hope of the gospel. It sounds very simple, but it's difficult to execute. It's a simple concept, but it's difficult to execute. Because, you see, we live in a different generation than the church did in 1827 when it was founded here. Because if you look at the, even this community, this church, through the 1800s and early 1900s, the church was a social hub. The church provided a lot of things that have now either been... Uh, subcontracted out to other organizations or uh, taken over. Like, for example, 100 to 200 years ago, you did not have a government welfare system. The church took care of that. The church neighborhood took care of their own. I mean, I can even remember as a child, even 30 years ago, we still had some semblance of that. I could probably count on less than one hand in my elementary school class how many kids I, I knew of overtly that was on food stamps. Because it was something that the neighborhood took care of their own. You know, I, I remember as a kid, you know, Dad got laid off from the mine, but we still had food in the freezer, and we still had land that we could go harvest a deer so that there's meat in the freezer for us. And there was even times that during those layoffs, there were people in our neighborhood that were worse off than us, and we'd go grab a bag of, of beef out of the freezer and maybe some vegetables that we had frozen from the garden the summer before to go help them out during a time of uh, trial or tragedy. You know, we, they didn't wait for the 3rd and the uh, 30th to get their welfare distribution. It was done within the community because... They knew at some point it was going to come back around. And that happened with us when my dad passed away. A lot of farmers came to help with the harvest. A lot. Because my brother had to handle and execute a lot of that. But there were a lot of farmers. They just kept coming. That has since been outsourced to the government. It's something that the government takes care of the welfare of the people, so we think. Uh, there's other social avenues that used to be that you came together once a week or a couple times a week as a church for that social interaction that was built around the work. work. There's a lot of other organizations that you can do that with now. So what's left for the church? There is one thing that cannot be subcontracted out from the church. And that's delivering the hope of the gospel. We can work with other outside organizations that their strength is getting the gospel. But as far as delivering the gospel in the local community and discipling people and growing them in the faith, you cannot substitute that. If that goes away, your community is in a whole different can of worms. So that's what we, that's what we have to provide. We can't let... 
we can't forget the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. Like an old Baptist pastor told me uh, years ago, he said, if you as a church have done all these different social programs, you've done all these different efforts, but all you've managed to do is make this world a nicer place to enter hell from, you failed. Because if you've done the food pantry, if you've done this, you've done the, this other ministry, you've done a mom's group, but yet people are not getting the gospel, we failed as a congregation. So those, those are the kinds of things that we have to do. We have to get that message out that Jesus, God's promised Messiah, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, to die on the cross, raising again to defeat death and hell so that we may have eternal life through a relationship with Him. That's the gospel. That's the message that our community is dying to hear. They just don't know it yet. They just know they're hurting. They just know they're going through tough times. They just know that they're suffering. And they don't know that there's a hope out there that's bigger than them. And that's our job. So... They may be able to hear this message elsewhere. They may hear it on the radio. They may hear it on TV. They may see it online. But there's nobody that can build that in and nurture them like a local church community can. So that's our job. So I can tell that while we're called to do this, it's never going to be easy. That's what Paul's talking about in this message. He's talking about if you're doing this, you're going to face opposition. And it, it may look a little bit different. It may, it may look a little bit different in our culture than it did for Paul's. With Paul, if you went against the Roman form of religion, you could literally lose your head over it. You could be killed for your faith. In many cultures in our world, that can still happen. In the U.S., it looks a little bit different. In Western Christianity, it looks a little bit different. Uh, Kaufman's commentary, who he wrote between the... Uh, early 1970s through early 1990s. It took him about 20 years to finish his commentary, start to finish. And here's, here's what he has to say about persecution. And he says, The absence of persecution in any active sense from the lives of most Christians of this era is generally due to the watered-down version of their Christianity and not to any subsidence of the savage hatred of the darkness for the light. Beside that, the persecutions today are manifested much more indirectly. Promotions are withheld, invitations are denied, and a snickering unpopularity for the daily portion of many precious souls working in a hostile, atheistic environment. Given the right conditions, such oppositions could be just as deadly as the great Roman persecutions. It's like you wrote that yesterday, wasn't it? But the earliest that could have been written was the early 1970s. But that still applies today. That applies in this generation. I, I've been, been listening to some different... Uh, writers and speakers that they don't come at it from a Christian point of view, but they are pointing out there's something wrong in our American society that people with certain views are being what they're called deplatformed and unpersoned in online conversations. Because people that hold views that are outside of the normal view for people in our community, they're being removed from social media platforms. Their accounts are being shut down. They're being locked out. Um, it's gotten to the point where some banking companies have removed the ability for that person to do business with that bank and send or receive money. 
So that's, that's where some of this could be going. So while it's not as deadly, it may be that someone has lost the ability, due to their views, they've lost the ability to make a living. Which, that can cause problems. That can cause a lot of problems. And you're seeing that now in places like India. You're seeing it in Southeast Asia. If someone holds views outside of the religious majority, they're not allowed to do business in the marketplace. Their kids can't get jobs places. You know, they're, they're brothers and sisters who may not even be of the... They may be of the majority, but the leadership may say, hey, your brother, he's one of those Christians, so I'm not employing you. I don't want to risk being associated with your family. So those are the kinds of things that Paul was talking about. Verse 13 is similar to what we talked about last week when we talked about teachers that were teaching false doctrine. Uh, they were talking about people that would use a not quite right gospel to deceive and gain material uh, possessions. Thomas Koch, he gives us an example of the false teachers that were of that time of Paul and Timothy that Timothy might even be familiar with. Uh, he, he points this out in his commentary on verse 13. The English word is seducers. The word properly signifies sorcerers, magicians, jugglers, witches, or enchanters. Jan Janus and Jambres were evidently such imposters who endeavored to vend a false religion for a true one and to support it by their incantations. Janus and Jambres were a uh, pair that were false teachers that Paul ran across on one of his missionary journeys. Uh, it's a very interesting story. You can uh, look that up in your private Bible study this, this week. But Paul reminds Timothy in, in this letter that it's not going to get better. There's going to be more false teachers. There's going to be more false doctrines that are not in line with Scripture. Uh, he goes one step farther. Uh, in the English Standard Version, he, the, this phrase is translated, they will go from bad to worse. I'm not sure where we are right now. I'm not sure if we're at bad or worse. But if it's at one, it's going to the other. And it's important that we are so familiar with foundational doctrines of Scripture that we can spot a counterfeit a mile away. Because there are plenty of, they call themselves teachers, in our society today that they outright either deny or will question and cause doubt on major tenets of the Christian faith. Um, a co-worker of mine, of mine and myself this week we were having a conversation that uh, he, he is from a Christian background but walked away from it as an adult. So he's, he's very knowledgeable of some of those basics of Christianity. So we have some interesting conversations. But we were talking about the rise of something that's called the atheist megachurches. And he said, I had never heard of such a thing. And it's, it's something where what we talked about a few minutes ago, where a lot of the things that the church typically provided are there. It's a place to get together. They do service projects together in their community. They have meeting times where the kids can get together and get to know each other. And it's, it's time that moms and dads can learn about whatever they learn about together and have that social interaction. And they 
do good in their community. They may even have a food pantry. But the one thing that they don't have that a typical church has is the gospel. But it's, it's something that, that's there. It's out there. It's entirely against biblical teachings because they teach that there is no God. But yet, it looks on the outside and on the inside entirely like a church in its function, in its layout. But the gospel's not there. You don't have to go that far to see it. You don't have to go all the way to the idea of an atheist megachurch. You can go to the LDS church and you see these teachings are not in line with sound doctrine. They make it sound really close. You can go to the Kingdom Hall of the JWs. They make it sound very, very close. But it's not in line with basic foundational doctrines of Scripture. If you don't know that foundation of Christianity, if you don't know what the Bible says, it's very easily, very easy to be led astray. Because they can say something that sounds 99% right, and you're like, oh, these people aren't so bad after all. They're close enough. They, call, they even call themselves Christians. They can call themselves Christians all day long. I can also sit in the garage and say I'm a Corvette. <laughs> you're going to get the same result. So this is why Scripture is so important. And this leads us to verses 14 through 16. And we'll wrap this part up a whole lot quicker. Uh, in verses 14 through 16, this is where Paul is telling Timothy, Scripture is important. Scripture is reliable. Scripture is authority. Now, at that time, they had written the Old Testament. What Paul was giving was about to become most of the New Testament. The witness of the disciples was about to become the Gospels. So this is, this is the culture that they're in. This is the time period that they're in. But Paul is saying God's word is authoritative. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. And we have to know it and know it well. Most people in here are either spouses or parents. Right? Yes. And as spouses or parents, we spend time with that child or with that spouse. We get to know their voice. We get to know their mannerisms. We get to know their habits. We get to know what they like and what they don't like. To the point where, if that person's in a crowd speaking or talking, we can pick out their specific voice. This is the kind of familiarity of Scripture that this, this passage is talking about. Having that intimate knowledge of God's Word to the point where, if someone is teaching something that's not quite right... We can spot it a mile away. That's what Paul's pointing out in these three verses. That the proper response to all the false teachings around us is to know Scripture and know it well. F.B. Hull brings out this out in his commentary in verses 13 through 15. He said, The thing that Timothy needed was to be assured that he had in the Scriptures that which was of God and therefore wholly reliable. Something on which he could safely take his stand when confronted with the dangers and seductions to be expected in the last days. This is exactly what we too want, and God we think we have it in the Bible. So the scriptures are there to help equip us to do what God has called us to do. And what that is, is to carry out the will of God in our community, 
Warren Wiersbe details the role of Scripture in his commentary on verse 16. I love how he puts this. They are profitable for doctrine, what is right, for reproof, what is not right, for correction, how to get right, and for instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. So it's about getting it right and staying there. The Bridgeway Commentary gives us a sense of the necessity of studying Scripture because we have to be ready to do what God calls us to do in our community and beyond. It says, those who are well instructed in the Scriptures will always be ready when an opportunity arises to do good. So, what I want you to see from verses 14 through 16 is it's not purely a knowing academic exercise of knowing, yes, John 3.16 is for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son and whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's academic. It's living it out in our community on top of knowing it. Because if we just know it and don't do anything about it, then we're not doing what God's called us to do. Constable points this out when he looks at the phrase every good work that's in here in verse 17. He says... Every good work is the ultimate goal of our lives. The mastery and use of Scripture is only a means to an end, not an end in itself. God did not give us the Bible to satisfy our curiosity alone, but to enable us to help other people spiritually. So it's not just another book to sit on the shelf. It's a tool to use in helping others in our community. So the summary of this is that God knows what we're going through. God knows that we're going to face opposition. But we can trust that God's word is true as we tell others about him and make disciples that make disciples. That's the point of this passage. Because it's not just knowing, but it's knowing and doing. So I think that's a great place to leave this passage. Because next week the baton is going to be passed to Pastor Scott. And this is a relay that is called Reaching This Community. Now, it's not a sprint. It's not a marathon in the sense of one person taking it and just running with it solo for 26 miles. It's more of a relay in the fact that people in this congregation are going to be called upon by God or delegated to do things in this community, to reach others with the hope of the gospel. Because it's not something that Pastor Scott or anyone can do on their own. It's going to take the work of everyone in here to make a difference in this community. And it's, going, it's a relay that requires that the, the baton's going to get passed around. It's not just Scott's to hold on to for the time he's here. We all have to realize that. We all have to realize that it's going to require people to do tasks that God may be calling that are outside of our comfort zone. Hang on, it's going to be a fun run. If you call it run fun. <coughs> Some do, but this is going to be something that God's called us to do. Because at the end, we get to say, I have finished the race. I have completed the task. There's the finish line, there it is, and God is at the other end saying, well done, good and faithful servant. So, as we close our time in the Word this morning with our communion through quiet worship in the Quaker tradition, if you've been given a word of encouragement for the congregation in our time of interacting with the word, please share. As we have our own quiet worship, though, I encourage you to marinate on the following.
One, do I treat God's Word as fully trustworthy? And two, am I allowing the Holy Spirit to equip me to serve in my community? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the time that we can share together looking at your Word, Lord. And I pray that as next week we start a new chapter in this congregation with Pastor Scott uh, taking the reins, Lord, I pray that uh, you would just strengthen him and equip him to uh, be able to do what you have called him here to do, Lord. And I pray that uh, you would uh, give him the strength of this congregation and helping to uh, equip each one of us to minister to our community, Lord. And I pray that uh, you would give us opportunities, even this week, to share your love and your hope. In your name I pray. Amen.